Welcome to the very first episode of the Significant Figures podcast. My name is Diana Pablo-Sinel. I'll be your co-host this evening, and I am the CEO and co-founder of STEMI. Today, we will be interviewing Stacy Hill, who is currently the head of customer success at Polygence, a selective online research-based mentorship program. She received her master's of science in chemistry from Yale University, where she studied oxygen atom transfer mechanisms relevant to renewable energy solutions. She completed her master of arts in liberal arts at St. John's College and her bachelor of arts in chemistry at Middlebury College. She worked as a nanotechnology research scientist at the National Institute for Material Science in Japan and at the Lurie Nanofabrication Facility in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Today, we are going to be interviewing her about her experiences in STEM and chemistry um, throughout her high school career and college career. So without further ado, Amy, take it away. I'm a senior in high school. I'm Amy Nan, and I go to Lee High School, and I'm from California and I'm interested in studying chemistry in the future. Hi, my name is Aishwarya, and I am a junior at Plymouth High School from Michigan, and I'm super interested in um, neuroscience and biomedical engineering. And I am Diana Pablo-Sanel. I'm a 12th grader at Lee High School in California, and I'm interested in computational biology and biomedical engineering. Great. We're really excited to have you on our first episode of the podcast, Stacey. Uh, what inspired you to study or pursue chemistry? Yeah, I think that's a great question, and I really appreciate you guys having me on your first episode. That's so exciting. Um, so I think my interest in chemistry kind of came from two places. The first is um, growing up, my parents were in a small um, local business in actually processing film. So before we had digital cameras, there were phone-based cameras, and my parents ran a business that would process the film, um, which involved a ton of chemistry. Neither of my parents went to college, but I thought, um, you know, I I saw what their business did and I saw that chemistry was an integral part of it. And then when I got to high school, I realized that I loved chemistry, had this awesome, vibrant chemistry teacher, um, Dr. Val Delamar, we used to call him Dr. B. And he made it really clear um, that chemistry was not only a subject in school, but was, solve problems in the real world. And those problems could either be good problems or bad problems. So for instance, he used to tell us about the company he worked for before he became a high school teacher. And at this company, he was in charge of a project to make paper burn faster than it normally does, Um, which is kind of a weird problem, right? Like why would you need paper to burn really fast? Um, It turns out that that's really important to cigarette companies because you would want your customers to burn through your cigarettes faster so that you sell more cigarettes at the end of the day. And so this was his way of showing our class that science can be used for good, but it can also be used for bad. And it's something you should think critically about. But I thought it was also a really good example of chemistry is not just like this abstract thing that you're gonna learn in our classroom. It's not just stoichiometry, it has real world impact. And I thought that it just spoke really clearly to me. One thing that I think isn't emphasized enough in school is that there really aren't subjects after college. Like you you take subjects in high school and you major in a subject in college, but really after that, all that's left are projects and problems. There's no subjects anymore. And often that like projects and problems require that you combine multiple subjects together most of the time. And so I think that if you're interested in problem solving, then you're set up really well for doing Um, great work even after college and if you kind of keep with that mindset of like I want to be solving interesting problems um, that will take you far in chemistry or whatever science you decide to pursue. Great Uh, I hope we get to hear more about your experiences when you learned um, chemistry post high school but um, now I want to ask you about what extracurriculars in your high school and undergraduate career encouraged you to pursue chemistry? Yeah, that's a good question. So in high school, I don't think I did anything related to science other than the courses that I took. So I, I mean, I took standard AP classes in biology, chemistry, mathematics, um, and like history or whatever. But I didn't really know that I could do research in a lab in high school. I didn't know that I could, you know, start my own makeshift lab at home. Like I thought I might need permission to do something like that. Um, so I didn't really start doing extracurriculars, let's say, in STEM until college. And that's when I started getting real research experience. So I worked 
in a lab my sophomore year of college in an organic chemistry professor's lab. And then after that, um, you guys mentioned this, I worked at the Lurie Nanofabrication Facility at University of Michigan. And I got to go to Japan to do some research there. So actually most of my high school experience at least was not focused in STEM. It was very broad. I was you know, involved in the high school musicals at my, uh, at my high school. And I ran cross country. Um, I was a pretty average student, not thinking about my career as a scientist. It's really interesting to hear that prior to going into college, you didn't have any science-related extracurriculars. And it makes me think that it's never too late to change your academic interests. I would add, like, it's not even too late in college. So I have friends, for instance, who studied the sciences throughout college, but didn't start getting lab experience until after college when they started working in industry. So they didn't go straight to graduate school. So I had a friend who joined this biotech startup in Boston after college and she really loved it and worked there for two or three years and loved the lab work and decided, actually, I want to go to grad school and pursue sciences at a higher level, more rigorous level. And she didn't do, I don't think she did any research in undergrad. And so I think it's never really too late. Um, that being said, there's a lot that you can do in high school and undergrad if you know this is what you want to do and you want to get started. Now, I would like to ask you, how have you balanced other interests through your academic career and if those interests or experiences have given new meaning to your academic pursuits or maybe got in the way of them? When, you're, when you ask about other interests and other academic pursuits, I think of a lot of different things because I not only love the sciences, I really love the humanities and I think it's really important that they go hand in hand. I think they make science better and I think they make the humanities better. But I also just think hobbies are super important and it's something that we don't talk about enough, I think, at least in America. Like if you ask, you know, if you want to make a 20, 30 or 40 year old really uncomfortable, you should ask them what their hobbies are <laughs> because they'll have no idea. Uh, most adults do not know how to answer that question. And really, I think, or at least the adults I admire have answers to this question and it doesn't jar them at all. Um, and it's always kind of on my mind to have hobbies and um, kind of let those hobbies and other interests influence the work that I'm doing. So I'm always reading something and I think reading is truly a hobby. Um, and I don't just kind of read haphazardly. I, I think critically about the books that I want to read. Um, but I also recently started taking up jump roping, which is super random. Um, if you want to have a really great time on Instagram, I highly recommend like looking up some hardcore jump ropers who do crazy tricks. Um, and, you know, this isn't completely relevant to the work that I do right now, but jump roping requires a lot of stamina and it requires a ton of practice to do the most basic thing ever, like literally jumping in place and getting the rope under you. It's quite difficult and I'm not super coordinated, so maybe it's extra difficult for me, but kind of taking something totally outside your comfort zone and practicing it and realizing that you improve upon it and you make great strides by doing, you know, little bits of practice every day really does translate to other work like in the sciences that's no different than like not being so great at setting up your let's say experiment um the first time but you need to do it five more times anyway so you're going to improve each time and so i think it's i think it's really important to not kind of dive in to your field 1000 percent without having little projects going on um, on the side and i think great scientists have this you know going on um, great scientists are always doing things outside of their field and reading papers outside of their field. Elon Musk is a great example of someone who's like doing amazing work, but has all these random side projects going on that seem to not relate to each other, but clearly he's learning from all of them. So um, I would say that doing work outside of your primary field of interest is one of the most important things you can do, whether you're in the sciences or humanities or whatever project or problem you're solving. I love that you have such an interest in jump roping. That's very unexpected, especially, you know, when we think of scientists, we definitely don't uh, really think about their hobbies. Um, I, I just had a question. Um, you mentioned that you did high school musicals in high school. Did you continue with like um, your passion in theater or was that just, you know, a little side gig? So I was never in the musicals. I started playing violin when I was three years old. So I always played in the orchestra pit and I actually started playing in the orchestra pit in fifth grade for our high school musicals because it was a K through 12 school and they let me kind of do what I wanted. And so I've always loved theater, but kind of the back end of theater that behind the scenes stuff that people never see. And so I did do a little bit of that in college. I guess my freshman year of college, I couldn't join the, the pit for the musical that was happening on campus, but they said that I could 
um, help with the lighting and I had never done that before and I was a freshman and looking to make friends and I was like sure why not um, so that was it was a fun experience but I haven't really kept up with it now <laughs> I'm an wow. avid supporter I go to the theater when I can <laughs> for sure so it's so interesting um, you're also into music have you explored that any further than the what you were saying with the orchestra pit and you know one of the things that I'm really curious about and haven't like spent enough time on is the intersection between music and mathematics. There's a lot there, like a crazy amount there. Um, or like physics and music, how musical instruments are made is I think a really fascinating concept. Um, and making new instruments out of like, I don't even know what you would make new instrument out of these days, like maybe digital material or even just like a new kind of structure of an instrument. Um, so today it's more of like, oh, that's an interesting thing that I would hope to learn about maybe on a YouTube video. Um, but in my personal day-to-day -day life, it's more of just like an appreciation of music um, and not like a robust study of it or practice of it. Do you guys have experiences with music or like what extracurriculars are you guys doing? Does this, is my experience like relevant to what high schoolers are doing today? Yeah, I actually asked because I'm uh, really huge on music and um, I've actually spent most of my summers doing music instead of uh, science related extracurriculars. So I did drum corps, which is, um, a it's, a it's a form of marching band so it's a lot more rigorous and you spend the entire summer just traveling and playing music around the country um so whenever i hear that there's someone with passion in music and science i get really excited as well oh my gosh i would say it's everywhere like one of my professors at yale like professor not graduate peer one of the professors at yale would sing in the yale college choir which I thought was so cool. Um, and this was something that was super important to him. There's also, so I work for Polygens, which I'm sure we'll get to later, but we have a bunch of mentors who have really straddled the line between music and science. Uh, we, one goes so far, um, his name is Luke, and he's at Caltech right now studying mathematics. And he was a, pref he was a professional musician for multiple years as a cellist, I think with his siblings. And so I think um, coming to the sciences with a, with a love and appreciation for music, you will definitely not be, um, you'll have a lot of company, good company. When you yeah. mentioned that um, there's a lot at the intersection between physics and music, I was thinking there's a, an event in Science Olympia, yeah, Sounds of Music, <laughs> yeah. you, you get to, to learn about the physics behind music and um, you actually create an instrument. So most people create recorders. Last year, our team actually created um, like guitars. So that is always, it's really interesting to see how science plays into that. That is so cool. And so one of the reasons why I find this really interesting is because I remember learning trigonometry in high school and like sine and cosine functions and then it coming up in calculus and I was like, wow, this is so boring. Like, why am I learning this? And then uh, <laughs> and then when I went into the sciences and I was studying chemistry, especially quantum chemistry, um, you know, waves come up everywhere. And my professors would always make analogies to music because waves make music, they make sound. Um, and so I was like, I think college really inspired me actually to re-focus um, my attention to the intersection of music and, and science and mathematics because my professors understood better than I did that there was really a connection there. And so it's pretty cool that uh, Science Olympiad is bringing that up. That's awesome. Going back to your high school extracurriculars and experience, I also really related to that because um, actually I haven't really done that many science-oriented uh, extracurriculars, um, mostly just my courses. And I've mostly focused um, my extracurriculars on music, actually. I play clarinet um, since uh, elementary school and I've done a lot of orchestras and wind ensembles. <laughs> so I thought that was really great to hear. That's amazing. And um, yeah, I think Doing lab work in high school is really hard. Uh, it's hard for a few reasons. So the first reason is most labs won't even let you get into the lab until you're 16. Um, so there's like a huge barrier to entry right there. Like you have to be 16 to start working in the lab. Um, and then let's say you get to start working in the lab. You will probably be shadowing a graduate student. And that's really valuable experience. But you'll get to do that in college. Um, and as a high schooler shadowing someone who's a graduate student, you're not really in touch with the professors. You probably don't even have a great sense of what the research is that you're doing. You're just learning the skills, like the grunt work. 
And I think the best part of research is thinking about the questions and how those skills are used to solve a problem or apply a solution. And so I guess I would only recommend lab work to a high schooler if they have a really great graduate mentor. If you don't have a really great graduate mentor, I'm not sure if the experience would be valuable enough to justify it. Of course, everyone has to make this decision for themselves. I wanted to ask you why you chose Middlebury College for your undergraduate studies and why you transferred from USC. Yeah, that's a great question. So in high school, I went to a private school. It was a pretty small school. And I had only heard of big name private schools and I was determined to go out of state at a private school because I was kind of in the income bracket where if you get into a good enough private school, the financial aid is better than if you were to stay in state and go to a cheaper public school. So that's a little bit of context. So I applied to maybe six private schools out of state and I got waitlisted at five of them and I got a full ride to USC in California. So I decided to go there. It was a no brainer. <laughs> and it was a good experience because right away, like I went in being like, okay, I'm going to be a chemistry major. It was obvious that I was taking intro chem classes and doing all the you know math and physics that needed to go along with that. And then I quickly realized that I would do get better grades in the class if I didn't go to class. If I just like stayed at home, studied from my textbook and took the tests. And by Thanksgiving, I was like, this is so backwards. Like, I would really like to know my professors. I would really like to know the people in my classes. I would really like college to be more than what I'm making it right now. And I think there are two routes there. One would be like pull up my bootstraps and like figure out how USC was going to be the right fit for me. But I had been talking to a friend who went to a smaller art school in California, Pomona, and he was telling me about the classes he was taking and the discussions he was having with his his peers. And I was like, that sounds amazing. Um, he was specifically he was taking a freshman seminar on how to write about the sense of smell, which if you think about it is really difficult. Like I don't I don't think I can do that very eloquently. So like, that's so cool. I don't see any classes like that here. I wanna be having interesting conversations like this with my peers. So I started looking at small liberal arts colleges and I think I applied to like the top 12, like crossing my fingers and I got waitlisted again at like more than 90% of them, including Middlebury. And I really wanted to go to Middlebury. I had visited in the spring of my freshman year of college and like just the whole, the campus blew me away, the people blew me away, like the professors blew me away. I was just like, I wanna go to Middlebury. And I can tell you a fun story, but I won't because I don't wanna make this too long for everyone. But I did get into Middlebury after like really fighting tooth and nail and like telling the admissions officers over and over and over again that I wanted to go. And they finally did admit me, which was such an amazing day. And I, went there mostly for just like a more enriching intellectual experience given my personality but what i discovered is kind of this interesting question of if you're interested in the sciences is a big school going to give you the training that you want or a small school and i think it's you know th there's two sides to the coin right so at a big school there's a lot of toys like there's just so many departments they have a ton of money that they can throw around and there's a lot of interesting projects and problems that are being solved that you can work on. Um, it's a little bit harder, I find, to like infiltrate though, because again, you're the undergrad at a graduate, like a predominantly graduate level institution. Um, even at places like Stanford and Princeton and Yale and you know even the Ivies, they're predominantly graduate level institutions where the professors are trying to publish. And so being under being an undergraduate there, you have the leg up in having exposure to a lot of different projects and problems, but I think the mentorship that you get is really variable. So it can be excellent, like stellar, 1000% off the charts, or it can be really lackluster. And you have to get lucky or really advocate for yourself to have a really good undergraduate research experience at a large institution. What I found at Middlebury is that you have built-in mentors because your professors are there to really teach you they don't have graduate students around, so and they are publishing. So you still have the opportunities to get your name on papers, but you also get the really in, 
sincere one-on-one -on -one attention that you deserve when you're being mentored in the sciences. And I didn't expect that at all going to Middlebury. I was just like, I want a different college experience, but it ended up being, I think, a really beneficial move as a scientist as well. Uh, so more about your college experience. Um, what encouraged you to switch from a liberal arts to chemistry, like between your undergrad and graduate studies? I went to Middlebury and studied chemistry, and then I went to St. John's College in Annapolis. And you either know exactly what I'm talking about, like you either know exactly what St. John's is, or you've never heard of it at all. Um, it's this tiny, tiny liberal arts school in Annapolis and Santa Fe, actually. There are two campuses. And there are a lot of reasons why I decided to go there. But I would say the primary reason was I was looking on their website and I saw what their curriculum was. So they have one curriculum and one curriculum only, and it's to study the great thinkers or the great books of Western civilization. And what this means for the sciences is that they are reading Newton, they're reading Darwin, they're reading Einstein, they're reading Ptolemy, they're reading Galileo, they're reading the primary sources of the greatest thinkers we've ever heard of but have never read about. Like, right? Like, how many of you have been given Darwin's origin of species in high school? Yeah, no. none of you. Like, I definitely wasn't. And I learned Newtonian physics from a textbook that was written by someone in this century, you know, or like this decade even. And I was like, wow, I've never read any of these thinkers or scientists that whose science I use every day. And that just felt wrong to me, like that there was some serious dissonance that I couldn't resolve without going to St. John's. I was like, I have to read these things to be a great scientist. There's like no question about that. Um, and so I really went to St. John's for that reason. And it turned out to be like maybe the best decision I've made in like my very short life. Um, <laughs> it was transformative in a lot of ways. Um, so the first way is as a scientist, you are going to sit through thousands of hours of lecture classes thousands of hours of lecture classes, which is really weird because once you become a scientist, you, you're always like talking about science and you're trying to ask your graduate student peers like, hey, like how do I solve this problem? Or what's the right question to ask here? Or talking with your advisor and explaining your work. There's a lot of verbal communication when science is actually happening. But when you're a student of the sciences, you basically shut up and, and learn from whoever's in front of you in class. And I think this is actually a really big problem. Um, and what St. John's does is nothing like that. Everything is seminar-based. So you're always talking, you're always questioning, um, and you're figuring out, you know, like, does this make sense? What do they mean here? I don't quite understand this word. Like, really simple questions that make a really big difference when you're reading tough things. And so, um, I mean, I think St. John's is the best school ever. Um, you know, I, I definitely would evangelize it, but um, I think the takeaway here is if you want to be a really great scientist, it's really important to know where your science come from, comes from. Like you want to know how they thought through problems that were insoluble at the time. Um, and you also want to know how to talk about your science. And I think this is the one thing that science education just really misses, is how to talk about science. And you don't start getting practice until, I think frankly, it's way too late. So I would advise students to, you know, start journal clubs and I don't know, do you guys have I've heard, talked to a few high schoolers who have journal clubs. Is this something you guys have? I don't have it at my school. Okay, yeah. I, I mean, I don't think I had it. I didn't have it at my high school, and I didn't have it in undergrad either, actually. Um, but I highly advise like reading tough things and talking about it so that when you get to graduate school, you know how to talk about your science, which means you know how to market your science, which means people pay attention to your science, which then means your science has you know, real impact and people will use it and, and share it with others. I had a question about St. John's. So are there any other schools that you were looking at that had a similar curriculum to St. John's where it's very seminar, like question based? Yeah, that's a good question. So I used to work at the admissions office at Middlebury and what I used to tell prospective students is <laughs> that it doesn't matter where you go to college because the curriculums are all the same. Like you're going to learn the same chemistry, whether you go to Middlebury or Princeton or UC Berkeley or University of Oklahoma. Like it just, there's no, like the chemistry is all the same. Um, what really changes from school to school are the people and like, as you said, kind of the format of the classes. Um, 
I think there are very few schools that do what St. John's does. I think there's one called like St. Aquinas, St. Thomas Aquinas College. Um, but then there are there are universities and colleges that have programs within it that are similar to St. John's. Hillsdale, Columbia definitely has one. Columbia has like the core program um, that's somewhat similar to St. John's. Hillsdale College, um, I think Yale has something similar. I don't remember what it's called. You really have to, you have to seek them out. Um, and I would say that as a scientist, it's, it's almost just as valuable to take a humanities course just to get practice speaking if you can't find a science course that does the same uh, because it really is a skill and it's not a skill that's emphasized in high school or college but it's really important to develop. I think that in like public universities it's just like a huge lecture hall and then the professor just talks and talks and I think students don't really get a chance to ask questions so it's really great that you had that opportunity. So could you tell us a little bit more about your career pathway and the different kinds of jobs and research experiences that you've had in the past and like what kind of STEM-related job was your favorite and why was that? Yeah, those are all really good questions. I would say one of the coolest things about becoming a scientist and being in the scientific community is that your work and your time is really valued. Um, and this is for a few reasons, like at least in America, the government really values it. And so there are a lot of, there's a lot of taxpayer dollars just thrown at developing great scientists, which is really nice. So throughout college, all of my kind of career experiences leading up to graduate school were doing summer programs in the sciences, which were like internships, but they were really, really good paying internships. So for instance, I, I mentioned working at Middlebury my sophomore year in an organic chemistry lab. I was paid for that experience. And then I applied to REUs, which stands for Research Education for Undergraduate. And these are programs all across the United States um, at major universities mostly. And they're competitive but they're great opportunities to do research outside of your home institution and get paid for it. Um, so that's where I looked at the University of Michigan and then that experience led nicely into the experience I had in Japan where, you know, I was in no position after graduating from college to go to Japan. Like I was in debt. I had never had like, you know, I didn't have savings. Um, but because I went through this I guess like sequence of research experiences. I was accepted to not only do this internship in Japan and get paid for it, but like it was all expenses paid. Like they paid for my flight and then I had a stipend for my food and my housing and then I got paid on top of that. Um, and so one of the, I think this is just a really nice thing that the sciences does is it really shows young people that their work will be valued. Um, and then after that, I did kind of like some side jobs and odd jobs throughout graduate school. In graduate school, you get paid, but not as much as you would think. <laughs> so um, it's nice to have like supplemental income if you have to pay off some loans. But I will say one last thing about graduate school, which is if you are interested in the sciences, one of the nicest things about graduate school is that you get paid to go and your loans stay in deferment. So that was one of the like one of the maybe top five reasons I applied to graduate school is I was in debt and I loved learning and I loved science and chemistry. And so I was like, okay, if I go to graduate school, they're gonna pay me for my time. My loans will stay in deferment and I'm gonna come out on the other side with a, a higher degree. And that just seemed like a win, 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 win. Yeah, that sounds great. And man, it's so cool that you got to work in a different country and gain experience from there too. Like I would love to do that. How was your experience being a graduate student at Yale University? So at Yale, I had a really amazing experience. I had a stellar advisor who I adore and I'm just so appreciative of. His name's Jim Mayer and he's in the chemistry department there. He used to be at the University of Washington, but he was recently what they call a poached from Washington to go to Yale. Um, so that's when a, a professor at another university gets kind of swooped up by another. Um, and I felt like it was such a supportive environment to be creative and do great work. I was really impressed with all of the professors there and not just like who they were as scientists, but who they were as people and advisors. And that's really why I chose Yale over some of the other institutions that I applied to. Um, and I would say the worst part about graduate school is the classes. The best part is like doing the research you went there to do and working with the people that, you know, who care about the science that you care about. Um, it was a really wonderful experience and 
what I didn't realize going into it is that I was applying to the graduate program in chemistry at Yale, but that didn't mean that the rest of Yale was closed off to me. In fact, like all of Yale was open to me as a graduate student. And so I took advantage of, um, I actually like was a, a mentor for one of their residential colleges, which means I got to use their art studio. I would go to lectures on campus that I was like totally not invited to, but I was not not invited to. Uh, and yeah, I would just do the things that I wanted to do that were part of the institution. And I didn't think about that when I was applying to graduate school, but it became a really pleasant surprise. That's so cool. I think Yale has always been like a really like dream college for me and I would love to go there. So what did you do after graduating Yale University as a research scientist? Yeah, so after I graduated, it's actually kind of a, it's a stickier situation than that. So I applied to Yale's chemistry PhD program and I decided after taking my qualifying exam, which is kind of the exam that um, if you pass, that means you are a PhD candidate, which means you can go on to get your degree. So I kind of took this exam, I passed it, and I told my advisor, hey, I'm going to take a year off. Like, I'm going to go to California and see what's out there. Um, and so that's what I did. And I was doing kind of some odd jobs and found Polygents. And Polygents is this online research academy that lets students learn whatever they, it is that they want to learn. So it can be anything from computational biology to fashion design to artificial intelligence, kind of like data science stuff. Um, we even have students working on policy documents, et cetera. Anyway, so I found Polygents and that's what I've been doing pretty much since I left graduate school. And then I had the opportunity to go back to Yale and I decided, you know, there is a trade-off here. I could go back to Yale and finish my PhD, which would be another three or four years at minimum, or I could continue working at Polygents. And it was a, it was a hard decision, right? Like for uh, two very different tracks in life. Um, but I ultimately decided not to go back, at least for the time being. Um, and I'm very lucky because my advisor was super supportive of that. Yeah, that's great that you get to get like another job while doing like your PhD and everything. Um, and how did your research at the National Institutes of Material Science in Japan influence your work back in the United States? So I had a really interesting experience in Japan because I was actually placed in a lab where no one spoke English. So my PI, so my, my like head advisor spoke English and spent a ton of time in Florida actually, which is where I grew up. Um, but the people in the lab who I worked side by side with spoke very little to no English, including my mentor. And so my mentor and I would literally talk to each other by sitting at a computer. This was in 2014 and, or 2015, sorry, and typing into Google Translate, like what we wanted to say to each other. That was my experience in Japan. Um, she was the most lovely woman like I met in Japan, and I'm so fond of the mentor I had there. Uh, but it was really difficult to make that way in, in my work because of the language barrier and just like the time constraint, right? It was 10 weeks. Um, and I was doing something I'd never done before, which was more biotechnology. Um, so I was culturing cells, which I had never touched before in my life. I was always cell averse, but I didn't really have a choice. When they tell you, you can go to Japan and they'll pay you for it, you just say yes and go. <laughs> so, um, my research there was more a learning experience for me, aside from the cultural experience, an experience to learn about cell biology. And if I wanted to straddle the line between biology and chemistry or chemistry in another field. And after that experience, I was pretty sure I didn't want to work with cells anymore. They're just, they're like babies. They're living things and it's very difficult to make them happy. Um, so that's what I, that was like the biggest scientific takeaway I had from my experience in Japan. Um, but I have many other like really wonderful memories and, and experiences from my time there. I have like a quick follow-up question. So like did the people who gave you the opportunity to go to Japan like know that you didn't speak Japanese or? <laughs> That's a good question. They totally know. Uh, they totally knew. So it was through a program that I think is still around called NNIN or it might have a new acronym because it's always like dependent on government funding, but it stands for National Nanotechnology. I don't know, I'll have to get you the acronym. Um, anyway, they chose 10 students from America and the um, American territories, territories to go to Japan. And they chose labs where they had projects for someone at you know my level going into graduate school. And they found labs with people who did speak English and like, it wasn't like I couldn't talk at all, like 
with the people in my lab, but science, the science was really hard to get across with the language barrier, yeah. I'm just curious, did you learn any Japanese in your time there? Um, sort of. So Japan has a really, um, I think it's a really wonderful culture of respect. So like everyone is just so polite and considerate of one another, like to strangers at least. And so I learned very quickly how to be nice. Like I, I learned how to say please and thank you and like greet, pre greet people appropriately. Um, but that was about as far as I got during my time there. I, I do wish I would, you know, it's like if I had infinite time on earth, it's one of the things I would do for sure. I, I had a follow-up question from a while back actually um, about Yale. So how would you say your experience at Yale compared to that with St. John's and with Middlebury? So the thing I loved most about St. John's is that no one ever asked you what college did you go to before you got to St. John's or like, you know, things of that nature. And you really, you know, it was almost taboo to do it. Like I didn't even think to do it honestly while I was there. Um, and so you, I was kind of forced to learn how to talk to people and take them at face value and think critically about, okay, do I agree with what they're saying? Do I not agree with what they're saying? What's the right question to ask next? Um, and also this is an important thing, to be able to distinguish between what a person is saying versus how they are saying it. Because the delivery is important for persuasion, but if you're just trying to understand another person, you just need to get at the content. Um, so that's something I learned at St. John's. And then at Yale, it's totally different. At Yale, there's a ton of like, oh, how should I phrase this nicely? Like elite nonsense going on. <laughs> um, meaning people are intimidated by other people a lot. Um, one term that's thrown around a lot is called, um, oh, I always forget, it's not inferiority complex, it's imposter syndrome. So people think that they don't belong at Yale, even though they've been accepted. And this happens at like a lot of in elite institutions, I think. Um, but I think because I went to St. John's beforehand, I just like that, uh, that mentality was so foreign to me that I didn't end up buying into it, which I'm really grateful for, because I think it's one of the biggest, um, barriers to being successful at one of these elite institutions is thinking about it as an elite institution. If you can just go to your professor's office and talk to them like a human being and forget that they have a Nobel Prize, like you are well, they, you are better for it and the professor will love you for it. Um, because at the end of the day, these are just human beings and they make stupid mistakes all the time and they're not always good advisors. And like, it's, it's better to treat them with respect rather than reverence because they're not gods, they're just beings. Um, so that I would say is like the biggest difference between the two um, and I would say again I think at the undergraduate level there's just more variability across big institutions including ones like Yale versus small institutions and so I think at a small institution you're making some sacrifices but you're guaranteed to have good mentors because people will care about you it's just like their job and the statistics lay out that way um, whereas at big institutions, it's more of a crapshoot. You have to be a really strong advocate for yourself. Um, but there are a lot of opportunities if you can get past those barriers. Oh, that's, that's very interesting to hear, especially as someone uh, interested in applying to some of these institutions. Uh, I'd like to learn a little bit more about your current career at Polygence. And so, and we were wondering, like, what is it like being the head of customer success? Why did you um, kind of choose that position? And what exactly do you do? Yeah, so I was the first person hired at Polygence. I joined Polygence because I really believe in what it does, which is give students the opportunity to learn whatever they want, however they want, with alongside an expert mentor, which I think really helps. Um, it gives you motivation, encouragement, um, kind of the right resources and things like that. So that's why I joined Polygence. But what I do there is, you know, a total hodgepodge of things. So one of the things I do is I interview our students and I interview our mentors and I figure out, okay, should they join our academy? Um, and then from there, I figure out who's a good fit for whom. So if someone applies um, in computational biology, let's say, I interview them, I look through their application and I learn a little bit about their personality to be quite honest. And I think about the mentors that we have and I say, okay, like, 
given that this is their interest and this is who they are like as a person, maybe they're a little shy, maybe they're really vocal, or maybe they have a funny personality or, you know, people are different. Um, so I kind of think about these things and I, and I end up matching students and mentors. The other thing that I do is um, think about our marketing, which is something I've never done in my entire life. Like, uh, you know, I'm reading a bunch of books on marketing, which is, you know, something I never thought I would do with my time, but it's really interesting. The art of persuasion is so important. It's important whether or not you're in marketing or not. Um, and I think a lot with the two co-founders, Janos and Jin, about where we want the company to go, what we want our students to learn and grow, and honestly, like, what how should we define success like in schools right now success is very much like okay what did what score did they get on the standardized test what colleges are they going into um you know how what's the graduation rate metrics like this i'm not sure if that translates well to polygens so i've been thinking a lot about you know like what would it mean for our students to be successful you mentioned you don't really have a big interest in being the next big scientist um so would you consider going back to like actual research or are you just with science education like all the way? This gets back to what we talked to in the beginning of the podcast which is like the difference between subjects and then projects and problems and I think I really went into graduate school thinking about subjects um, and I was like I'm a chemist love chemistry and I just want to keep doing chemistry because that's you know the thing that I like and that I'm good at and want to keep doing but it's become more apparent to me that it's more important to think about projects and problems and there isn't a project and problem in chemistry that I am really motivated by right now and actually the projects and problems that I'm most interested in are outside what you might call my expertise and that's okay like I think if at some point I really want to tackle those projects and problems like if it's my primary goal like I'll figure out how to do that um, but right now, I really see myself within education. And that's one thing, really interesting thing, actually, is um, if you're interested in pursuing graduate work in the sciences, I recommend just kind of like going on LinkedIn and seeing what people with PhDs in the sciences are doing. And it's fascinating how variable it is. Like some are in, in, some are in academia doing research, some are in industry, either doing research or solving problems, um, but some are in government. Some of them are at national labs, like some of them are in education, it, some of them are in policy. Like it's just, it's very interesting to see where they end up. Yeah, that sounds awesome. So we saw that you have expertise in nutritional chemistry, gra graphical visualization, and the philosophy of science. And we were wondering if you could expand specifically on your, your expertise in those subjects. So you must have found that on Polygens. So those are the topics that I list on Polygens as because as, I'm a mentor also for Polygens. So those are the topics I mentioned that I'm interested in mentoring students on. And the reason why I picked these, um, I'll kind of go through them one by one. So nutritional chemistry, I think is like just like wicked interesting and it's wicked interesting because it's like almost sham science right now like if you try to really learn about how like the nutritional benefits to biology at the chemical level there's just like not a lot of great research there which means it has the most potential to do the most good right because you're not moving the needle a tiny bit you can move the needle a ton to make it really robust and rigorous. Um, and I think something I felt trapped to actually in undergrad was like, I'm super interested in nutritional chemistry. And then I looked into programs and it seemed like sham science. So I was like, I'm not going to go do that. But that's actually exactly where you would want to go to make the most impact. Um, so I'm, again, kind of in this mindset of nurturing the next generation of scientists. I think it's really important that humans know that you know, where the quote unquote sham sciences is actually where the most potential is for them to do the most good. Um, and then for graphical visualization, this is something that all scientists, whether you're a social scientist or a natural scientist actually, you're gonna be doing. Um, and one thing I think we take for granted is that, you know, when data is presented to you, it's presented to you in one visual way. But as the scientist collecting that data, you can depict it maybe 50 different ways. And it's up to you as the scientist to figure out what's the most um, effective way to get at your reader. And this is really important because um, when you read a scientific paper, the first thing that you should always do is look to the figures, look to the pictures. We're 
like whether you admit it or not, like human beings are visual learners at a very basic level. And scientists know this, which is why they depict their data. And it's important to be able to think critically about, you know, how do I want to present this so that someone else understands it in a snap? Um, and then the last one is philosophy of science, which we've kind of talked about already because it's related to my interest at St. John's. I just think it's very important that students interested in science know where the greatest, or what the greatest scientists said, what they were thinking about, what questions they were wondering about, and how they tackled those questions, how playful they were actually in tackling those questions. And so that's why I have that one up there. That's super interesting. I never even thought about nutritional chemistry before. And about the like philosophy of science, how can you do projects within that field? I think of it as a project is something that has a start and a finish, like, you know, an idealized end. Um, something that you can then share with other people that they might find useful or entertaining or uh, maybe persuasive, something like that. Um, and so I think the project I proposed for philosophy of science or history of science is actually about um, writing a dialogue. So like fun fact, a lot of great scientists wrote a lot of things outside of science. Like Einstein has a bunch of interesting letters that he wrote that you can read on politics and education. And I think Planck and Heisenberg have also kind of interesting musings. Richard, or Richard Feynman also has lots of cool things to say outside of the sciences. And um, it would be a good exercise to kind of get in their head and figure out, let's say just pick two of them. Maybe it's Galileo and and I don't know, Richard Feynman, and you read what they've written and you figure out what their core questions are and what they're grappling with most. And then think about what it would be like for them to have a conversation. Like that would be a really weird thing to happen, right? Like they're totally different time frame, like they're totally different eras, totally different problems that they're thinking about, but what would it be like if they spoke to one another? And that kind of mental exercise, um, I mean, it engages your empathy and imagination, but also makes you think about the problems that they were facing. And then you're writing it down in a way that would be useful or entertaining to someone else. Um, it's a short project. It's not something that's gonna, like maybe you could publish it and share it with, you know, put it in Barnes and Noble or something. Um, but I think projects are, especially in high school, they should be fun. Um, because once you become an adult there, I don't know, like money is wrapped up in it and like prestige and all these other things. So I think it's really important in high school to learn about projects and just have fun doing them so that when you, when the stakes get higher later, you at least know how to do it. Well, that project sounds very, super interesting. Um, and speaking of projects, oh, one of our questions was, what is like the most fascinating chemistry project maybe you've already done or that you would like to do in the future? Yeah, so the work that I was doing at Yale was super interesting. Um, but again, like it wasn't the project or problem that I think I should, you know, spend all my time doing, but it was really interesting, which is um, there's this gap between how molecules behave and how nanomaterials behave. Like that's undeniable. They're very different, right? Like molecules are hyper individualized maybe like with covalent and ionic bonds, but maybe they're only a hundred atoms or 10 atoms or maybe even, a, no, not a thousand. Like I would say a hundred to 10 atoms might be a good range. Um, nanomaterials on the other hand are an order of magnitude bigger. So they're at the thousand atom scale, maybe 2000 or 3000 atoms. And so they have similarities in the sense that they're super small, but they behave slightly differently. But that said, they're like, at the end of the day, they're both atoms, like they're a, an accumulation of atoms. And so my job at Yale was to figure out, okay, like, how are these things the same? Like, is there any overlap at all? Because if there is, that it would be really, really powerful for a few reasons. One is like, um, when you have nanomaterials, you can do really interesting things with them and track them, for instance, like they're big enough to be tracked. Um, they're also big enough to do some interesting things with electrons. So for instance, mole molecules, like the 10 to 100 atom stuff, all the electrons are bound up in covalent bonds, let's say, and they're kind of like stuck there. And the way to do chemistry is to break those bonds or make new bonds. But it seems like nanomaterials have these interesting properties where you have like extra electrons floating around that aren't really in bonds. And you're like, well, what are they doing there? And can we use them? Like, I mean, 
Electrons are super useful, so can we leverage nanomaterials to do interesting chemistry? Um, so this is all really abstract, um, but I think the takeaway is I found this really interesting because it's something I never read in a textbook. Something as simple as that, it's like there's so much cool science out there that's just not in your textbook and people are really trying to do groundbreaking work. And then the key is like for your own personal life to figure out is that the project or problem that you want to be working on? Um, what does it solve? What does it contribute to? And then in my case, it was renewable energy, which I think is a super important problem, um, but not the one that I'm most passionate about or the thing that the problem that I think I'll make the most impact in. Awesome. I would love to, to learn more about nanotechnology and philosophy of science. A lot of subjects I've, I've never really thought of um, pursuing. You had one last question. What are the real life applications that you're most interested with nanotechnology research? And do you have any personal hopes or predictions for discoveries? Um, and nanotechnology affecting our future. There's definitely a lot of potential for nanotechnology to improve the world we live in. And I would say it's already exists. And the hardest part is really getting it out into our world. So like a lot of stuff is happening in labs that's really successful. And then kind of translating that into a product that people want to use and buy is, is hard. Um, and I think the best motivations for people to buy things are energy, medicine, and entertainment. And so I think if nanotechnology is going to really break through the barrier between academia and society, it will be in one of these areas. And I'm not really sure where it will be. I don't know if you guys saw the Neuralink um, presentation this past week. So um, Elon Musk, is working on this new company, Neuralink, that puts like a computer chip in your head, which seems super futuristic and scary, whatever, but it involves a lot of nanotech. And that will, I mean, I think his long-term goal is to help people with spinal cord injuries, or at least that's his like ostensible goal. Um, and so that's a medical breakthrough, right? If that does indeed work, I don't know if it will. And so I think if nanotechnology is gonna be successful, it's gonna be in one of these three areas. But I also think that, it's just really hard to get science from the lab into the hands of society. And I think the reason Elon Musk is so good at it is because he has like the street cred and the, the financial capital to really do it. He's also a bizarrely good marketer, even though he's super awkward. Um, like it really works for him. Uh, so that's all to say that I think there really already is great nanotech in the lab. and. I don't know, like we haven't been bullish enough to get it into the hands of the people, which is sad. I think that's a really good end to our, our episode today. I hope everyone really enjoyed listening about Stacy's journey through Middlebury and St. John's and all of these liberal arts colleges and Yale, of course, um, and also learning a little bit about nanotechnology and science education and of course, polygens. Um, so we wanted to really thank you. Stacy. you had so much amazing insight for us today. I just want to say thank you so much, Stacey, for all the information. It was super helpful, and I'm sure all of our listeners would really love to hear more from you. Yeah, thanks so much. I guess the last thing I want to say is I really love what STEMI is doing. I think it's great that you're kind of democratizing this access to what it means to be a scientist and get scientific research. Um, and I'll also just put in a shameless plug for Polygens. You can follow us on Instagram or Twitter, or uh, if you have a LinkedIn. We even have Facebook now, so follow us at Polygens, and um, I hope to hear from your listeners. Pleasure meeting all of you guys.